Okay, here we go. I text Gerard, do you want to come over, watch me stuff swim trunks into a weekender bag and maybe a movie? <laughs> Regret is a gift that keeps on giving. I think it was Sontag or Sonic the Hedgehog who said, just dash, dodge, weave faster than you can think and there's no time to shame Spiral, crushing on Muse, whose even slight squint bursts me into high July while dialing, essentially, a trick. This is my argument. Muse crashes into the edges of my nights, isn't crushing, doesn't love me, doesn't have his shit together, though neither, frankly, do I, but yanks me and my hand onto the dance floor until tilt-a-whirl and goes on like land, just accumulating in my eyes. Gerard is a grown-ass man, sly winks, snakes, free drinks on the bar because he could pay for the expensive ones, all calm and body and blue. And all Muse and I do is wander from party to party, pop off with Popov or Georgie or Poland Spring, whatever is deeper than well and gives you a hangover just riding the subway home. Lavender candle, string lights. Sage sticks gathered by my brother from the res to smudge my new apartment. Staging, I've learned, can be just as important as what you whisper into Gerard's ear when you set the espalone down on the end table beside him and blow a little and back away slow, locked eyes. Is that good? Awesome. <laughs> All right, so... That was poet Tommy Pico reading from the beginning of his book, IRL, published in 2016 by Birds LLC. And I'm Rachel Zucker, your host of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'd never met Tommy Pico in person before meeting with him on May 20th, 2018 at NYU's LaGuardia Co-op Recording Space. All I knew about him before reading IRL was that he was friends with Morgan Parker and that he wrote book-length poems, that he'd written and published three book-length poems in the past two years. I read IRL over the course of two days while at the Vermont Studio Center, and it blew me away. It got inside me. It surprised and delighted me, and damn, did it impress me. When I got home from Vermont, I had less time to read, and I wondered if reading Tommy's two other books, Nature Poem and Junk, would be less satisfying in shorter, interrupted sittings. Not at all. Tommy Pico's books are the kind of poetry or novel in verse that I want to read before I go to bed at night, while on the subway going to work, out loud to my students while they're free writing, and even, and this is a true test, while sitting in a doctor's waiting room. Indeed, I read Tommy's work instead of those delicious-looking magazines that I'm always too embarrassed to buy for myself. By the time I read Nature Poem and Junk, I'd learned more about Pico. A member of the Kumeyaay tribe, Tommy Pico grew up on the Vallejas Reservation of the Kumeyaay Nation in San Diego County and has lived in Brooklyn since graduating from Sarah Lawrence College. Tommy was founder and editor-in-chief of Birdsong, an anti-racist, queer-positive collective, small press, and zine. And in 2018, he won a Whiting Award. In this conversation, you'll hear Tommy talk about how he became a poet, the process by which he trained himself as a performer and poetic craftsman, the writing process and formal concerns behind IRL, Nature, Poem, and Junk, 
his other projects, including screenwriting and his podcast, Food for Thought, and so much more. Patrons will receive access to sound files of Tommy Pico reading from his own work and of Tommy reading some poems that Commonplace patrons chose for him to read. Patrons will also be entered in a raffle that includes IRL, courtesy of Birds LLC, Nature Poem and Junk, courtesy of Tin House Books, and Patterson by William Carlos Williams, courtesy of New Directions. Thank you, Birds LLC, Tin House, and New Directions, and all the presses who so generously support Commonplace Raffles. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. To become a patron, please visit our website, commonpodcast.com, where you will also find links to the people and texts Tommy and I mentioned in this episode, and where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes out once per episode. And thank you, listener for your tweets, emails, iTunes reviews, word of mouth recommendations, for all your forms of attention. Thank you. And now it is my great pleasure to share this conversation with Tommy Pico with you. So I just love your books. Thank Um, you. Although they have caused me to have a crisis. Which, oh, no. Yeah, which is kind of amazing. And I and I do kind of like uh, selfishly want to ask your advice and opinion about this sure, crisis. Sure, yeah. Okay, but first, so I read IRL. How did you, like, how did it kind of, how did you find it? Um, I kept hearing about it um, because I had Morgan, par- I, kn- I knew Morgan a little bit. I love Morgan. I Same. had Morgan on Commonplace. Mm-hmm. Um, Morgan's also really good friends with Christine LaRusso, mm-hmm. who was a student of mine and works on Commonplace. And, and, um, but also it was sort of like that thing everybody is saying to you, well, have you read IRL? Have you read IRL? And, and I was like, no, I know I have to. <laughs> and I had it. So, I mean, the other thing is I think people were recommending it to me in part because I've taught a class on the long poem. Okay. And so they were like, well, you're going to really like this. This is this is interesting for me to hear because in my mind, nobody has any idea who I am. Just because for the longest time, I wrote zines. Mm-hmm. I left them out in the world. And I didn't really get too much response from anything I've ever done. Um, and also, I just, I feel like I am e- eternally used to, in like that sort of DIY mindset, eternally used to um, make, like my relationship is with the thing that I make. Mm-hmm. And once I send it off, I don't have a relationship with it anymore. And so it's been interesting. I just got back from a book tour and um my first tour when I did IRL as a tour was in 2016, the summer. Nobody knew who I was, and I was tacked on to everybody else's event, everybody else's launch party, everybody else's um, reading series or whatever, and I was like number five, and I would get three minutes. You know what I mean? And this experience was, I was the headliner. Everyone knew who I was. To my to my shock, um, and no matter where it was, that was a packed house. You know, and I'd go to places like Portland, Maine, I've never been to before, and it was just like every queer weirdo in like a a 20 mile radius was like attracted to was like osmotically attracted to it or whatever and I was just like what is going on but it's cool or whatever I mean I I sold a lot more books 
<laughs> back up for a second now like i i feel like i have spent the last few weeks immersed in mm. tommy pico land ah, um which is i'm been so sorry so, <laughs> it's been super fun but like not i i have to help people catch up to me gotcha. a little bit so okay so i read irl irl is one of a three book trilogy mm-hmm. um they're book length pieces we'll talk about whether they're poems or not mm-hmm. um and uh there's a character whose name is teebs mm-hmm. we can t- we'll talk later about whether you know in what ways teebs is and isn't you tommy pico mm-hmm. but can we talk for a second about tommy pico you for sure um and like what happened where you came from see i know a lot of this stuff because i was also been listening to it so once i read irl i had one exposure to who i thought tommy pico was um and then i started to learn more about you um and it's been really fun to see those stories come together Mm. or sort of stand beside each other um and so there's all this stuff that i want to ask you about but i feel like maybe can we talk a little bit about like you know where you came from and what happened in your life to lead up to you coming to the moment of writing IRL Mm -hmm. and then you know how it became this um this trilogy and then I want and then I totally want to come back to this moment of like the shift for you of um realizing that people do know who you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so I'm from an Indian reservation. It's um, east of San Diego, about 40 miles east of San Diego. In the cut, there's nothing there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, grew up in dirt roads and stuff like that and just like playing with all my cousins. And one of the experiences that I had of epic work growing up were these song cycles called the bird songs. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad is a bird singer. Unfortunately, because um, in my grandmother's generation, they were taken to boarding schools and, and you know, they were... Uh, um, their language was like stripped from them. They had cut their hair and all that kind of stuff. So the Kumeyaay language doesn't functionally exist in the United States anymore. So my when my father learned the songs, he had to learn them phonetically, mm. but he couldn't understand what they meant. So there's still a lot. I mean, thankfully, there's like the Kumeyaay community south of the border still speak Kumeyaay. So like there's been like some language um, that some people brought the language up from from Mexico into the United States. So like that's great. So the kids these days are like learning Kumeyaay. My generation did not learn Kumeyaay, neither did my father's generation. <clears throat> Um, so these epic song cycles were sung to a gourd rattle and, you know, they would sing them all night at, at funerals and wakes and stuff like that. And unfortunately I'm from a place where people die a lot. So I heard them a lot growing up. Um, so kind of, you know, getting into a teenage, as a teenager, I kind of got into punk music and made zines and stuff like that. So I was always kind of like, you know, make zines and then, uh, so that I could sell them so I could get enough money to go to the show, you know? Um, and I wrote poems, and, and the thing is, even before I could write, um, before I could spell, before I went to school, I had a tape recorder. And so I would tell stories to myself all the time. And I'm one of, like, I had just stacks of these, I don't know what the hell I was talking about, <laughs> but I would just start, you know? And um, and, and I, so I got used to interviewing my stuffed animals and, you know, making my G.I. Joes play with my Barbies and stuff like that. Uh, and, and as a, a teenager, in, at, in high school, I was the editor-in-chief of the literary magazine, and I was on the newspaper and stuff like that. And I went to Sarah Lawrence with the idea that I was going to study poetry. Um, but I got there, and I was so – I had so much issues, just culture shock issues for sure, but also um, being in the presence of 
wealth, like actual literal generational wealth and power. Um, And people who with sparkling educations, um, not that, and I'm not a dummy, you know what I mean? But I didn't have that good of an education. So I wasn't really able to express myself to the degree that the people around me were. And so I just kind of felt so dumb and so dirty. Um, And I, so I didn't, I didn't study poetry at all. I didn't write for four, five years. Um, and I decided I switched in my, my sort of major and I was going to go to medical school because, you know, I didn't know, and, you know, poetry is so subjective. I didn't know if I would ever be good, but I knew it, I could study and, you know, go to school for seven years and then get a residency and then go to, and be a doctor. You know, mm-hmm. like that seems like a, that objective path seemed very attractive to me after giving up writing, but then I, I moved to Brooklyn. I, the thing is, I did a, a program at Columbia Medical School the summer before I was going to matriculate that would give you an idea of what the rigors of the first year of medical school would be like. And for me studying medicine at Sarah Lawrence College, where we didn't really take tests and we wrote papers and I could write, you know, I could write whatever I wanted to about relationships between gas molecules uh, and not having to, you know, <laughs> really um, um, absorb textbooks the way that they did in other schools. I was completely out of my league. Mm-hmm. Once again, I was completely out of my league. So I moved to Brooklyn and I just kind of like, I was a bum for a while. You know what I mean? I just kind of like worked shitty jobs and, and, and lived in windowless rooms and stuff like that, like literal, not metaphorical windowless rooms because mm-hmm. um, the rent was so cheap. And I, I, I kind of started to make a community with people I graduated with who were making art and who, and who were writing, but there was no audience for them. And I, I tried to find a poetry community in New York, but nothing ever really stuck. You know, I, I worked at Soft Skull for a little while mm-hmm. and I, um, I interned at Ugly Duckling and a lot of other places and it just... I, I couldn't I, didn't, I couldn't find my people, um, but I kind of I sort of realized that they were already around me, and so I got some of my friends to give me a short story, uh, give me a drawing, give me an essay, give me a poem, and I'll bind them all together. Um, I would go to Kinko's and make like a hundred of them. I called it Bird Song, and we had a release party, and I got to um, host the party, and, and everyone got to read their things, and my friends who were musicians got to play. And so then we just started doing that every other month, and um, we are called the Bird Song Collective, and we published art and writing for about five years, from 2008 to 2013. And 2013, and, and also it was just, I had I had so much stage fright. I could not get in front of a group of people. I could not, like, I had an idea for the kind of performance that I thought I was capable of, but performance is, 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 is um, uh, practice and, and experience. Mm-hmm. And I just had to get more experience. And so the only way that I knew to learn anything was just like immersion therapy. So I just got on stage as much as I possibly could. And so, and the thing I like to tell people is like, it doesn't go away. It never went away, but I had more context. Contextually, I was able to fill the space with more things so that like before, like the stage fright was like the dominant, um, was like the dominant um, view in this sort of like frame. But then I got, by performing and performing and performing and performing, I just kind of widened the frame and that thing got smaller and smaller and smaller. And so now I don't even, 
it doesn't really occur to me to get nervous anymore hmm. because I've done it so many times. And also I am in full control of my voice, which something is, I had to learn to do that. I had to learn to control my voice. I had to learn breath control. I had to, you know, I, I, I really trained myself. So I would run and do scales, hmm. you know, um, cause I heard that's what Beyonce did. And I saw singing teacher for a while. And I really like, I did stuff to like, I started to, do um, exercises in order to um, increase my lung capacity. Because I was just like, I want to be, the only way I'm going to feel comfortable on stage is if I've got my voice on lock. Mm -hmm. And that kind of worked. And so that so that was like 2000, that was like mm, 15 years of work. Um, and then in 2013, I kind of put the collective to bed because I started to realize that I was event coordinating, I was editing, I was making these things, I, I was doing the fundraisers so that we could, you know, make more zines and stuff like that. But I wasn't really writing. Mm. And so I... Wait, what were the pieces that you were performing during that period of time? Oh, I mean, I was writing, you know what I mean? But, but they, were, they were all... See, this is the thing. I would get a lot of my criticism, my main criticism, was I think these poems end too soon mm -hmm. you know and it was um Kathleen Ossip mm -hmm. well I remember I took a workshop with her and she was like you found the easy way out <laughs> basically um and so she encouraged me she, and it was in her workshop that I wrote my first long piece and she talked about getting fodder for long poems and so mm -hmm. we would do these exercises to create fodder for longer works and so I, I kind of just put that together in my mind right now because I do remember her voice very clearly telling me this, you took the easy way out. And I didn't really know what she meant at that point, but I started to interrogate that. Um, and in 2013, I started to just like write, work on my own projects. I released a, a chapbook app called Absent Minder that I worked with a developer on. Um, and in it, you could... Um, read the poems and you could swipe through because you could download it onto your iPhone or whatever and you could swipe through and you could listen to me read them because my my friend at the time was dating who she's now engaged to um an audio producer and so they rigged they put a whole setup in my in my closet cool. uh, yeah it was really cool um and again like I heard you know my friend Sam Ross um was reading it and again he was like he offered not a criticism but he was just like I think these end too soon and my birthday, um, my 30th birthday, the clock struck 12 and Beyonce released her self-titled album. And I spent the entire night listening to it. And I saw it. I saw that I saw her transform from a person who created songs that made up an album to a person who made an album that was a song. And I saw them so inter, they, I saw them, I saw the interconnections in between them. And I was like, she didn't take the easy way out. I saw it as an epic work, right? And it was around that time too that I started reading A.R. Ammons um, at the behest of Jason Koo. And I was at a, a Brooklyn Poets retreat and we were reading a tape for the turn of the year. And I had been going over and over in my mind this relationship I was having. These two, they were they were polar relationships in the sense that one of them was with someone who was younger than me and one of them was someone who was older than me. And the younger one, it was like fun and sexy and cool. And the older one, it was like he was very secure, but like it wasn't exciting. And I used that as a... A screen. So we read tape for the turn of the year section from it, and then he was like, "Now write your tape for the turn of the year," 
And so I started to write it, and it was um, I, I, I I wrote it as if it was like a text message, and. I started to speak to these poles because it was everything started to then get filtered through these ideas of like this sort of like younger, sexy and this older, boring. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to under like, you know, it was like what I started to realize is that if you have a strong enough conviction when you start something, you can filter the entire world through that viewpoint. And I started to write this poem, IRL. And I worked on it for four months over the summer. And like, you know, sort of in the style of Ammons, in the style of tape for the turn of the year, which was it was written on a single piece of adding tape and it was, it was dated and so it was over the course of a few months as the year turned over. And I was kind of seeing my year turn over as in between 29 and 30 and thinking that meant something. Um, and so I took, you know, it was really hard and I was in an office by myself, or I was in, I shared an office with a few people over the summertime, which is like, summer is the payday of New York. That's the only reason why we end up staying here is because summer is so awesome. But I was like intentionally keeping myself from like the best, most wonderful part of the year because I was inside working and I was on Instagram every now and then checking and people were at the beach and they were in the mountains and they were at the river and they were in Paris or whatever. And I was stuck in a place, but I was like, I deeply believe in what I'm working on. I ended up performing the first section at a garden party with Pamela Sneed and Ariana Rhines. And they had both been mentors of mine. Pamela as like was my first mentor and, and Ariana in her workshop Ancient Evenings really taught me how to taught me that I could write no matter what. That like it was in her workshop that I sort of it was in it was in Ariana's workshop that I sort of learned that as long as I pay rigorous attention to what I'm reading and to the life that I'm living, I will never have writer's block. And it was in Pamela's and under Pamela's care that I really, my voice started to open up. Cause like, if you, if you watch her perform, you can see the seed where I got my thing from, you know what I mean? Um, and so I read it and I immediately got a response from the two of them. And I got a response from IRL that I've never gotten from anything ever in my life before up to that point. And I had told Ariana that I was, I was writing it as a Tumblr exercise. I, I had intended to write the longest Tumblr post in existence. And at that time, there were no restrictions on character count. So I was like, I want something that is going to dominate everybody's feed. And she was like, but then it's going to be gone. And she was like, I think you're actually writing a book. And Pamela was like, I want to read this book. And at the time, too, I was like, I was thinking like, oh, but this isn't going to this isn't ever going to be over. I think I'm going to be writing this until I'm dead. And Ariana was like, I remember feeling that way about things that I've written before. <laughs> um, no, no shade. And then I, I finished, I, I finished it over the course of four months and it had worked every single day, every single day, day in and day out um, on it. And in the way that I worked on it was, you know, Monday through Thursday was just accumulation. I was just, I could not take the, my pen off the paper. Everything was a yes. Everything was a yes. And I could not, there was, I had to strip the idea of an editor voice from me completely and totally. And then Friday was slash and burn where I would like, I would eliminate maybe 80% of what it was that I wrote. So in the course of writing IRL one book, I probably threw away five books worth of material. Um, and I sort of handed it over to a few friends of mine after I'd finished it, quote unquote finished it. One of them was a songwriter, one of them was a playwright, one of them was a poet, one of them was a fiction writer. 
And I was like, I don't want you to line edit this at all. That's not what I'm looking for. And that's never what I'm looking for because I believe that I am my best editor. But I was just like, can you point at areas that seem superfluous? Because in it has to be, it has to, I, I was going for a kind of rigor. Like I wanted it to burn the whole way through. But I, and I continue to have a sort of, inert disgust of my work and I'm saying inert because it's not going anywhere <laughs> um, and I could not imagine I could not give it to these people and have them read it and me be in the same city as them and in fact like having these books in front of me right now I'm not gonna lie I still feel a little bit of that um, but I gave it to them and, and I was like in a month like let me know what you think um, and so I was gonna stay with my friend Roy in Portland for a couple of weeks and my I was like, I was set out, I set out to do nothing. I was like, I'm not going to do anything the entire time that I'm here. I had a, like a going away drinks thing. It was with my friend Lauren. And she was talking about how, as a black woman, she doesn't feel like she could eat fried chicken and watermelon in front of white people. Um, and that like, you know, it's like performative or expected or whatever. And I was like, you know, I feel like I could never write a nature poem. I would never, ever, ever write a nature poem because like that is just so, so expected of, of an indigenous writer, you know? And then this white guy turned around and he was like at the bar, like just full point turn out of the ether and was like, what do you mean you can't write a nature poem? You could write anything you wanted to. Why would you shut yourself down like that? And I was like, oh my God, like, uh, thank you for just being whiteness right now. Um, I didn't, you know, but he doesn't pay my bills. And uh, so I was like, I'm not going to explain anything to this person. Um, but I left New York with that qu question ringing in my head. I spent like two days in Portland doing nothing, but, you know, drinking wine on a porch and petting kitties. And then I started to get anxious because it's not really in my nature to relax or do nothing. I'm not bad at that many things, but relaxing is one of the things that I'm bad at. Um, my insomnia will tell you all about that. So I had this question in my mind, or this idea in my mind of like, I can't write a nature poem, and I just started, and it was ended up being a nature poem. Mm. And wait, you started writing nature poem before you got the responses mm -hmm. back to IRL from the four people. Okay, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so um, I, I worked on it for two weeks. I turned it into a zine, uh -huh. and I put it on Instagram, and I was like, who wants this zine? And, um, you know, Morgan and, and um, Natalie Ilbert and um, um, Sasha Fletcher and a few other people were all kind of reached out, and they, and they sent it to I sent it to them, and then they kind of like – all got back and were like, what, what is this? Mm. This is amazing. And again, had never had any kind of response like that to my work ever. And like, I love Sasha. He does not perform like, he doesn't, he doesn't perform like gratitude or anything like that unless he really, really means it. And I was like, oh crap. And I, and, and like my friend Lauren, she was like, this is excellent. And, and so I started to, I got back from, from Portland and I got my critiques from IRL and I, I, I kind of got, I whipped it up into shape um, and I started performing from Nature Poem and I remember I was reading in Williamsburg with Ocean Vuong and I, gave, I read from it and, and he liked it and I gave him a zine and then he hit me up on Facebook like a couple of weeks later and was like, brother, this is fantastic, but I want this to be longer. You need to turn this into a book. Um, and so I started working on that book, 
And I sent out IRL to every press, every open reading series, every book contest you can imagine. And it got rejected every single time. And I was counting up to like maybe 26 rejections. And so um, Sa- uh, Samson Starkweather, the, uh, one of the editors at Birds LLC, saw me perform and was like, what? do you have a manuscript? And I was like, well, here you go. And, and then they took it. And the thing is, like, again, the editors at Birds were not doing line edits. They were just like, take a look at this section again. So I rewrote probably 30% of the book. And I understand the rejections. I really do. Because, I mean, it's not a tidy book of poems. It's, it's kind of unwieldy. And at that time, it was probably 70% of what it was going to be. Um, but I just thank my lucky stars for birds because, and for Samson in particular, because that they had, there was no incentive for them to accept it. They just really, really liked it, you know? And I wasn't shit. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, get Tommy Pico on your press or whatever. No one had heard of me at that point, except unless you were, unless you were like a, a poet in New York who went to readings regularly, because that's where people would see me. You wouldn't know who I was. Um, but interestingly, interestingly enough, as I was editing with birds and we're getting ready, you know, for my summer launch, Morgan handed my manuscript of nature poem to Tin House Mm -hmm. and they took, and, and Tony Perez at Tin House and Matthew Dickman were just like, this is amazing. We want this. So I had signed the contract for nature poem before IRL had come out. Uh Uh-huh. So summer 2016 rolls around. Like I told you, I went on my no-name tour. <laughs> Wait, was Birds sad not to get to publish um, Nature Poem and Junk? Or were they like, we oh, are they so were happy totally, with yeah. IRL and you should go with Tin House? I mean, it's a bigger, it has has more, I love the work that Birds LLC does. But Tin House has, is a bigger, more well-known. Yeah. Well, no, they didn't. Um, they were just support. They supported me all the way. Awesome. They've never been anything but supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and interestingly enough, so like uh, winter of 2015 rolls around. So 2014, I'm re- working on IRO. End of 2014, I start working on Nature Poem. You know, beginning of 2015, I'm working. I finish Nature Poem. Um, again, this is no, no contracts have been signed yet. Tail end of 2015, I start working on junk. Mm-hmm. So it was in the beginning of 2016. I think it was January. I was in Austin with my friend Roy for the um, MLA conference there that year. And I had like the zine version of junk. And I had um, my manuscript for Nature Poem that had just got accepted by Tin House. And I had this book IRL that was getting ready to come out. And I, I knew that I was going to have at least two books on two different presses, if not three. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of sat down and I made a style guide for myself, like a 15-point list of like what I wanted the font on the covers to look like, what I wanted the inside, what I wanted the guts to do, um, how I wanted the title pages to look, so that like if I handed them over and they gave me seven, like of, of these 15 points, if they gave me seven, that, would, that was enough cohesion that you would look at the books and they would look like they belonged together, regardless of the press, you mm-hmm. know? Because it was very important for me that they had an identity mm-hmm. to them that reflected, that, that you would look at and be like, oh, that's a Tommy Pico book, you know? 
So um, wait, hold on. Can I say some, one thing about that? Yeah, that's super interesting because, th- I mean, they de- they definitely do the cover the the way the books are produced have absolutely that feeling, but it's just because someone might not know. Um, IRL is mostly short lines, you know, uh, one very long stanza, but then with breaks and like little, um, I don't even know what you call those things. Little air holes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, Nature Poem looks sort of like prose, but we'll talk about that. It's not really prose, but it, but it looks more like prose and there's more punctuation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, junk is in couplets. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that the style guide that you did, you it, maybe that was even more important because the forms within um, do differ. Yeah. They're consistent within themselves, but mm-hmm. they differ. So the, so the other things had to be more visually cohesive somehow. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And, okay. and so, yeah, and, and IRL being a, 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 kind of being about spirituality and the internet and all that kind of stuff, that's my God poem. Mm. You know, that's my, like, the person that's Teeb searching for his goddess. Like, his, what, what Heber has been stripped from him. And the reason why I mention this is because, you know, I was thinking about the bird songs when I was editing the book and uh, thinking about how frustrating it is to be so close to something and so far away at the same time. Mm. Like, I'm, like, this cultural artifact is sitting in front of me. And yet, and it's, and I can hear it. And I've been hearing them my whole life. But I can't understand what they mean. And so that was kind of my relationship to, to Kumiai, all of Kumiai culture, because it's, it's just two generations away, right? We're sitting right there at the feet of my grandmother's childhood. Mm. And I, I had no access to it at all, and how, how frustrating and how maddening that was. And so that was kind of at the bottom of 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 the basement of IRL. It was just like somebody looking for their spirituality, mm-hmm. you know? I heard you say somewhere in some interview that um, you described it so this this stuck with me so much that the bird song or bird songs are the story of how we came to live in this valley. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering, because this time you talked about them as primarily being sung at funerals. Mm -hmm. um, But are they also sung at celebrations and happy occasions or are they? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're sung at at different types of 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 cultural gatherings. It's just that because funerals were so, my first memory is of being at a funeral. You know what mm. I mean? So like funerals were so prominent in my childhood. That's what I kind of associated them with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then I started to understand as I was making IRL, it was the most satisfying experience I've ever had in my entire life because I sat down and I realized that, you know, that, that I was, that as, a, as a travelogue, that's the only thing I know about the bird songs is their travelogues, about how they get, how we got to the valley, right? And what people passed on their way. And that like IRL was the story of how I left the reservation, you know, but it was a different kind of travelogue. It was still moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I had composed the first new bird song in like 300 years. Yeah. And I was deeply in that tradition. And that like, I saw, I saw, why I had to be alive. You know what I mean? I saw, I had a purpose. And that was just so, I never thought I'd have one. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I'd be lucky if I continued to live, but that I had a, that, that I had a reason for living. Oh my God. I saw like that. It just, it couldn't, it could just, life couldn't have gotten any sweeter at that point. And I saw too, that like the restless, that like, that I wasn't 
necessarily writing about myself, that I was writing about the world. And because I was writing about the world and the world always changed, that I would always be able to write mm. as well. And so that married with what Ariana Ryan had taught me before. And so all of these things, all these things I've been hearing my whole life were sort of starting to make sense. And so in, in, in Nature Poem, I knew that I wanted to, so in IRL, I wanted to create, it's like an, it, it is an eye. It's one long eye. <laughs> um, and, and a storm and with, with, uh, and a feed mm-hmm. and with nature poem, I de- deeply wanted to create a different, la- I wanted to create a landscape. Mm. So that's why there's more punctuation. That's why uh, there's italics. That's why the there's more mm-hmm. longer, uh-huh. longer lines and shorter lines. And some of them are just one phrase on a page. And some of them, you know, are, uh, Twitter back and forth. And some, so I, so it was deeply about creating a landscape, whereas junk was about creating a junk drawer. So there's no punctuation, right? And everything kind of ice flows or hot lavas into each other. Though there are many, many very, very sharp and distinct moments in the book, because of their enjambment and because of their accumulation, the book looks indistinct, you know, kind of like a junk drawer. So that's why the couplets, couplets because it's a breakup poem, (laughs) but also um, I wanted to make the lines four and a half inches long, as as close to four and a half inches as I could get, so that like if you were reading it, and because there's no punctuation, if you were reading it, let's say you looked up to see if it was your stop on the subway and you looked back down, you would lose your place. Uh And so it, it, it had to hold attention in that way. But then also that like if you found a moment and you turned a page and you turned back you would lose it Mm -hmm. just like if you were looking for something in a junk drawer yeah you know so it's form and function marries in that i form is essential to me yeah i also with junk um had the delight and um the, the connection to um to a ticker tape Mm -hmm. um as the word you see it coming into being but then you lose it also Mm -hmm. and it's like this constant like finding and losing and finding and losing and finding and losing whereas the vertical pull in IRL that it was a very different kind of pleasure and a different kind of tension and then again a different kind of pleasure and tension in nature poem I I took a lot of care Mm -hmm. to make some of these things seem um happenstance mm-hmm. you know what I mean like it's a craft even though it can come off as flip you know what I mean or that's just me though that's just like that's just me yeah okay let me give a little context to that comment too just because I feel like there is so much there's layers and layers and layers here um, that people won't really fully get until they read the books mm-hmm. um but like, I think part of what's so amazing about your work and part of why you're saying what you're saying is that there are all of these like abbreviations, like YR for your and, you know, um, that the, the, the work um, has the feeling of a social media post. And mm-hmm. you said like initially that like one idea was that it was going to be like the longest Tumblr ever mm-hmm. and it was going to disrupt the space. And, you know, it really it is so accurate to the way one speaks you mm-hmm. know not one the way you speak yeah, yeah, you know, the yeah. way a person of your generation who is you mm-hmm. speaks and so the abbreviations and the lack of punctuation is like is in a way could communicate carelessness mm-hmm. um, because that's the the way we write when we're doing less formal writing mm-hmm. but it is so careful it is mm-hmm. so crafted it is so precise and 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 there's something I've never seen. I mean, look, 
lots of poets are playing with this like really fun place that is both like careless and precise. Mm -hmm. But I've never seen it done exactly the way you're doing it. Um, and like when I read IRL, because I, I, I um, Craig Teicher a long time ago um, said, oh, you should read A.R. Ammon's tape for the turn of the year. And I was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> like, I don't need another like old white guy on my syllabus. I'm probably not going to like it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, nah, I want to read, you know, Alice Notley and Bernadette Mayer and mm -hmm. like, you know, that kind of long poem. And I had all these ideas about Ammons, mm -hmm. um, mostly because like Harold Bloom liked Ammons. So I was like, whoever Harold Bloom's likes, I don't like. <laughs> and then I read Fair. it. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, I read it and I was just totally entranced, like in so many different ways. And I see so many beautiful connections and differences mm. between IRL and tape for the turn of the year, including the way in which it is both like epic and anti-epic. Mm -hmm. Like Ammons with his bad back and his complainy, boring self just sits there, you know, and um, when he has to leave home, it's like it's an epic, but he never goes anywhere except mm -hmm. the one time where he has to like take his typewriter with him mm -hmm. and he's like all complaining about it. And yet it is an epic. And IRL is definitely, you know, the story of how of coming to New York and being in New York, having been fr from somewhere else. Um, but it's also the story of like someone who who doesn't go anywhere yeah. and doesn't have those kinds of like epic adventures. Right. The in, furthest he goes is like the beach yeah. to the Rockaways or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I, never, I hadn't even thought of it that way um, as like, you know, it, a per, like a personal epic or whatever. Yeah. But that's, yeah. Well, what, so I, can, can I just ask you one quick question about that? Because we talked about this so much in my, in my long poem class that I taught a few years ago. Oh, I um, want to take it. I want to go back in time and take it. Uh, I love, I taught one at, at Barry Poetry Club and it's just, and this, long poems are my favorite thing in the whole world. You know, it's so you've caused several crises for me. <laughs> oh no! One is a genre crisis, but another is this long poem class crisis because I thought so when I when I read IRL um, uh, in April, I I was I knew I was teaching a craft class, um, and I said, oh, I, I know what I want to teach. I want to teach the the long poem. I haven't taught it for like three or four years, and I'm ready because I was like. I need to teach this book alongside mm. Ammons and I need, you know, I have, I have all these like new long poems. And, and of course, junk came out of garbage. Yep. And so, but then they switched me to a workshop. Oh. And so, uh, I'm teaching a workshop. Um, and I think I might like go off campus. Like I think I might teach a long poem class out of my apartment or something. Like I, my feeling that I need to, Maybe I don't need to teach it, but I need to read it in a group of people mm. and I need to talk about it. I need to reread it. I need to have the kind of attention that I give to teaching mm. with this book in the context of other long poems. Mm. I don't know why I need that, but I really need that so much that you're that you might be causing me to to like engage in a whole new thing of my teaching career. Well, that's what Ancient Evenings and Ariana was. Uh -huh. It was in an apartment. It wasn't in a... It was like, just like a private yeah, class. Yeah, and it wasn't like a class. It wasn't a class. It really, the, the thing is, what we would do is um, take a ancient text, something very, very difficult and uh -huh. somewhat inscrutable, perhaps, and read it 
allowed in a group and like go around and around and around and around and then we would take like a five minute break where she would like play a little bit of music like no talking just like you know be alone with your thoughts and then write for Mm. 10 minutes and then everyone had to share what they wrote awesome yeah and so that's and and the thing is every time I took that class I wrote something that I ended up getting published Uh uh-huh and it really showed me how much and I was also at that time, I think it was, t- I, was I did an improv class. I did a UCB improv intensive because you know, they were talking about thinking at the top of your intelligence. And uh-huh. I was like, I want to do that because I felt so sludgy in my like, in my, in my complainy, weird, like I just, I, I felt inert. There was a kind of stasis that I was in that I had to break free of. Mm-hmm. And so doing the improv thing, it was horrifying it was absolutely horrifying it was such a <laughs> terrible experience but it was amazing uh-huh because i did start to be like what is at the top of my head all the time like i can't i'm not gonna sit here i can't think an epic up i have yeah. to make it happen you know and wait, then, wait what was wait do also you what did you say you said that in kathy ossip's class you did exercises to develop fodder for long poems mm-hmm. wait how was that uh, how, what were those? Some of them were taking um, different types of writing. So like some journalism, like music journalism, maybe a thing from a recipe, um, something like a, a paragraph from a piece of fiction, and then maybe part of a poem. And then you would cut all those words up. It was a cut up technique, basically, uh-huh. where you could keep up to three words in a sequence, but like no more than that and oh, wow. just sort of like reform everything. Um, and that and stuff like that. So it was just like... Um, getting to the point where and like doing writing exercises and and just kind of continuing to make make just making sure that the accumulation of words was the most important thing yeah yeah you know and that you could constantly do that so if like you're feeling stuck do these exercises and you'll get to the point you need to be at um and so that that combined with the ucb thing combined with ariana's ancient evenings workshop um, that kind of, and, and then reading Ammons and then Beyonce, it was like all of those things kind of, and then, and with like, and performing with Pam and, and Pamela Sneed and those five or six things just kind of unlocked this one flood that I'm still writing. I'm still, I'm working on the fourth book. So you are, uh-huh. so it's, and that it's going to be kind of in the next in the series. Yeah, I'm seeing yeah. I'm seeing it now as like a seasonal thing. So IRL is the summer poem, nature poem is the fall poem, junk is the winter poem, and food, the one I'm working on now, is the spring poem. I gotta stop calling it a trilogy. <laughs> well, is it a quartet or is it just going forever? Um, I'm thinking of it I'm also reading Patterson right now for the first time uh-huh. and I was just like, oh my God. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of like was anti-Patterson, probably in the way that you were anti-Ammons in a way, because you know, and listen, WCW, great, you know what I mean? And I was like, the things that he gets away with in brevity, amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to read this fucking five-piece city poem <laughs> or whatever. Like, other man is a city and a bag. Oh my God, <laughs> really? Come on now. And then I started, I, I, I got it when I was on tour because um, at Brookline Booksmith in, in Boston, when you go, when you read through there, they give you a book. And I, I, had, I was just like, fine, I'll, I'll fucking read Patterson. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm like, oh God, it's, I'm, I, I didn't, I think if, if thinking about the books now and the sequence and all that, I'm just like, did I just write Patterson? <laughs> you know, but like the gay Indian Patterson, did, is that the gay Indian like uh, uh, aught teens, you know, 
millennial whatever Patterson. Because um, after reading it, or in the, I'm in the process of reading it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, people probably like because I'm thinking about this in terms of like in the future. Like I definitely see IRL nature poem junk in food as one bound thing mm-hmm. you know i'm thinking about like the collected yeah <laughs> um and it's like oh no one is gonna believe that i wrote these things before reading patterson <laughs> right but, but maybe patterson was in the other things that you read or 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 the i also believe like just like there are archetypes there are forms or there are impulses or there are dreams that like we have access to mm-hmm. even if we haven't like read those words yeah and yeah. i was thinking about it in terms of um why i so deeply identify with ammons for example mm-hmm. and it's not that we have a lot in common because mm-hmm. he's dead mm-hmm. <laughs> but i th- deeply do feel after reading his work and 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 reading patterson and and and, and reading uh don't let me be lonely and, and reading jane and and reading descent of Alette and you just you're listing my whole long <laughs> long poem syllabus they were right all now. in my syllabus too <laughs> um we have very good taste we do we have excellent taste um i i think there's a way in which poems occur to Ammons similarly in the way they occur yeah. to me and and reading a long work and the type and the types of long work that I've read there there is something that I identify with with people who make longer work mm-hmm. and there is a dailiness about it there is an experience of time there is a kind of a poem that gets to question its poemliness yeah that there is always like because because you I think you can get away with writing a shorter poem and not having to not having not having that thing announce itself as a poem mm-hmm. <laughs> um and in fact i was talking to somebody recently who said that they h- hated poems that mentioned the word poem hmm. and i was like but i do it all the time he's like well you do it well and i was like no the thing is like it's not about it being well or not it's that like at a certain point the long poem has to be aware that it's a poem yeah and that there and 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 if it's an exercise in obsession and um and and deeply seeing things in myriad ways of course it's going to see itself at some point you know i mean there's there's so many things i love about the long poem and also i love the way i still don't know what i love about it mm-hmm. like it eludes me in a certain way and i think part of it is the way it sort of it, it violates some of the most fundamental rules of poetry um, in ways that make me think it might not be poetry I love most, but this other thing. Um, and I don't even know what that is. But like one of the things I think I've always been like more interested in people who make art and the process and, and the art as a as a record of the time someone spent making it mm-hmm. than I am in the finished piece. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the poem, especially the long poem, is like a is like the poet um, punching a time clock. Mm. You know, like you know, like like I didn't know that you worked, you know, that Monday through Thursday was like everything, yes and, yes and, yes and, and then Friday was cut it all down. But I certainly knew that you spent time mm-hmm. inside the compositional space mm-hmm. of this poem. And there's something really intimate and sexy and mm. like, um, 
I don't know how to even describe it that for me when I'm in the world of a long poem and I feel like I'm really meeting this other human being even if they're dead Mm -hmm. but even more so it's Mm -hmm. very exciting when they're alive Mm -hmm. in that space like there there's a way in which some short poems they transcend and Mm -hmm. I don't want Mm -hmm. I kind of don't want poetry Mm -hmm. often to transcend it's not that I never like that feeling but to me it's it's really different and then I have some political feelings about it for myself, not for other people, but, you know, long poems allow me to change my mind and allow mm. me to be wrong and mm-hmm. allow me to, like, fuck up and reconsider. And, like, I, I make so many mistakes in life. And, mm. you know, I say the wrong shit and I, and I offend people or I, or, I, or I say something that I think is true and later I realize I was fooling myself mm-hmm. or, you know, I... I, I, I I feel slighted by someone and then I, I reconsider and I realize, no, 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 you're just doing that thing again. And um, I don't know. To me, it feels just in my own work, like really dishonest on some level to cut all of that out mm. and to pretend like I recollected recollected in tranquility this finished thought or, 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 or scene. For me, it's about the process of... Um, I think you know. it's like like you can be articulate but not definitive. Yeah, right. Okay, wait. Let's go. I have a question about IRL, um, and I think it has to do with Ammons and all the stuff we're talking about right now. So I saw that you said, and and I and I love so that there's all these contradictions in your work, which I adore, <laughs> um, and I think are like easier to love and see in long poems than mm. the contradictions in shorter poems. Okay. So um, on the one hand, I love IRL because it has a kind of like, I'm going to tell you everything and I'm going to give myself enough space and enough time and I'm, you know, I'm not going to hold back and that's not what life is about and that's not what poetry is for and I'm going to like include all these details, which I think, you know, is something that I personally love but also have like a real political stake in, Mm -hmm. like not taking the things out, you know, Mm -hmm. um, of poetry that we are taught don't belong there. On the other hand, I saw you say, no, you wrote, um, I think it was on the Poetry Society website, that um, to some extent, privacy was the muse of IRL. Uh And I was like, Mm. yes, that makes sense, that IRL is both. It's both this impulse towards inclusivity, towards too muchness, towards inclusion, towards... towards, um, a radical resistance of um, hiding, mm-hmm. of of enforced privacy, mm-hmm. of shaming, of being closeted, of all the things like uh, like a real pushing back against any of those um, censoring, um, constraining forces. And yet, I feel that so strongly in in this. Um, that there, that the privacy is one of the most important muses of IRL. And you talked specifically about um, disconnecting from social media mm-hmm. as part of that, mm-hmm. uh, of being alone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. Will you talk about that a well, little? Well, in order to be, in, in order to make anything, in order for me to make anything, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm not prescriptive. So when I say it, in order to, I usually just mean myself. But in order for me to make anything... Um, I have to be alone, mm-hmm. right? And that aloneness is so 
pivotal for me in order to, because it's like, it's being alone and then it's sort of understanding, you know, it's that sort of message in a bottle thing where it's like being alone, and, but understanding that at some point this is going to have an audience, you mm-hmm. know, or that somebody that you're, that you're, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like um, being alone and then also having to ha- have an audience in mind that is specific enough that it has a point of view. Is making things for you a way of getting out of being alone, but you need to be alone in order to get out of it? Mm, probably. Uh-huh. Um, in order to, I mean, I feel like, like to reach for the reader because in a way if you you're sitting with your best friend or you're or you're having like the you know the constant hit of Instagram or you know whatever it is um you're not alone and you you don't need the connection of the of the poem I don't yeah, know yeah that that like um like the sort of stimulation inherent in sort of social media or or other types of interactions that like that they that that can um, maybe preclude some kind of depth. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm just you know spitballing at, at this point. But um, the idea of of having pri- privacy, mm-hmm. solitude, anonymity, um, uh, intimacy, and and fourth thing. The fourth, the <laughs> other, the fourth you? state of privacy. I had it somewhere. Uh, you said solitude, intimacy, anonymity, and reserve. Reserve. That was the last Ooh. one. Yeah, solitude, anonymity, intimacy, and reserve. That um, I understood from a kumiai perspective that there is an I. There is an inherent suspicion of anything. Non kumya, mm-hmm. and that in order to get us to open up, you have to spend a lot of time in the community first. Mm. But once you're in, you're in forever. Mm. And I wanted to allude to that. Well, I did allude to that in IRL in the sense that I was like, it, I think it's like three cycles in before I actually like talk to the reader you know and I'm like we're reluctant to tell our stories so you really have to invest in me and that's another reason for long work because if you want to get the goodies you have to stay with me for a while you know like we have to be I have to suss you out first and so I'm gonna put you through these trials and but then once you're in then you get but then then you get all of the things you know that that I'm trying to articulate or think about or whatever and and that just is another one of the most rewarding experiences for me in 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 reading and sitting with and in and in spending time with and living with a long poem is that then it becomes so much a part of my life too that I know where I was when I read tape for the turn of the year I know where I was when I read don't let me be lonely you know what I mean I I know where I was when I read descent of Alette and 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 it became a par- such a part of the fabric of my life you know that it won't ever leave me and and, and like there were a few other inspirations I mean there were a few other texts like um the white goddess by robert graves 
that was reading and Tate for the Turn. I mean, that's the that's like the less obvious um, influence on IRL, just because obviously, like it looks more like Tate for the Turn of the Year. But a lot of the performativity of that work and and June Jordan and you know, there's just like so many different muses that I have. You, I heard, I. I can't, where was this? I li- I laughed out loud um, the other day. I was listening to an interview with you and someone who was taking, I think it was a woman, I think she was taking herself seriously, not in a, in a, in a obnoxious way. And she was asking you about books and you mentioned a book that I have read hundreds and hundreds of times. There's a monster at the end oh of this God, book. Oh my God, I love that book. <laughs> I love that book so much. And if people don't know it, what we're talking about, like Grover, is at the end of the book um and there's all this you know tension around like don't turn the page don't turn the page and um i i was alone when i when i heard you talking about this and i started laughing so much because i was like yes Mm -hmm. that there's something in your work that that activates um that anxiety Mm. and that pleasure and Mm -hmm. that play um that is i you know, I do love type for the turn of the year, but he doesn't have that, mm-hmm. you know, definitely not to the extent that, that you, your work does. And Descent of Alette definitely does not have mm-hmm. that. Um, a lot of these, Jane has it a tiny bit more, I think. Um, but, but there's something that I was like, it's thank God, Tommy it admitted <laughs> that somehow this book is related to it. Yeah. Um, like I love like, you know, white goddess, and there's a monster at the end of this book together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, that reading that book and taking so much pleasure in reading and just, and also leafing through it, um, having, having the, having play is so important to me. Mm-hmm. I was talking about this with a friend the other day that like, in romantic relationships, having somebody I could play with is the, one of the most important things. And in writing too, because there's so much serious, deathly serious about life. There's so much like, the, there's so much darkness that I just contend with daily as an indigenous person in the United States, um, as a queer person, you know, that that like, that that play has to be a part of my life. And I just kind of got that growing up on the res where it's like there is, you know, one of my strongest and my first memories that being at a funeral. And I think the reason why it's so, so stark in my mind, because that must not have been the first one I ever went to, was my mother and my aunt Beasting crying and then cracking a joke and like making each other laugh and then crying again. And I was like that but that that switch that tonal switch was so much a part of my life that and in a way sometimes having sometimes like I feel like the levity has to earn itself or the darkness has to earn itself and so they're they're constantly at play with each other and I think it was Simone White who said like it was exuberance and threat that kind of swirl together in the in the work um and yeah and and so as as like self-serious as the white goddesses and as playful as, as there's a monster at the end of this book, like they're intrinsic into the kind of stuff that I want to make because you could write anything you want to, anything you want to. And that's just what I choose. And, and it even comes out, like I, I had an interview with like lit hub coming out soon and it was a written interview and the questions, um, there were very standard questions, you know, like 
tell me a little bit about your background and like talk, talk about poetry or like talk about uh it was about the the soundscape that I had made for the Highline called mm. Feed and um and which is getting cannibalized into the book that I'm currently making um and I talked and it was just I was just like I'm gonna have fun with this you know <laughs> like why not like have a little I think in a way what what um a monster at the end of this book kind of taught me was how to upend uh, or how to play with the reader's expectation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you talked in another interview about um, having been a pre-med major at Sarah Lawrence and like, you know, sort of being in, intimidated out of poetry for certain reasons, but also um, having this idea that you were going to cure type two diabetes oh, um, yeah. and the, and the, you know, and that would really be, um, you know, this, uh, profoundly important contribution, um, to your people Mm -hmm. and, and also, and then discovering that, um, part of this is, you know, largely, um, the, the risk factors for type two diabetes are social Mm -hmm. and then realizing, um, your contribution, um, to Kumeyaay, um, people and to native peoples could be social mm-hmm. and in curative in a, in a way without necessarily being medical, mm-hmm. um, especially if the medical was so affiliated with the social. Yeah. And, and right. And that, yeah. like that sort of that, um, finding a purpose, right. Right. Or that, that like that could be so much more curative than, um, Lipitor or something like that. Right. And so I was thinking, um, about your work in that context too, right? Like there's the real seriousness, there's the real sense of, um, of, of risk, of danger, of threat, and there's the real playfulness and exuberance and joy and mystery and um, charm. And then I think there's some, there's like another, you know, the other level as well, which I think you, and you've talked about this and I'm, I'm confused about the word artifact. Um, mm-hmm. Like I've heard you say, that um, how it is so deeply important, not just that you wrote an epic, but that this is the first bird song for so, what did you say, 300 years? years Yeah, you know, and that this is a Kumeyaay epic and that um, anything you write is Kumeyaay Mm -hmm. and that, you know, it becomes an artifact. And I was thinking about this poem, I don't know if you know it, um, called The Facts of Art by Natalie Diaz. Um, it's a beautiful poem. It's very disturbing, and it and it's sort of like a rewrite, or it's in relation to, it's in dialogue with Ode on a Grecian Urn, mm-hmm. and it's of a, um, a basket that's um, a Hopi basket that that um, the speaker encounters in the museum in Portsmouth, Virginia. And the basket is an artifact. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this word artifact, which on the one hand is like, um, when I heard you talk about your work um, as an artifact, I, I heard it in the way of like, you know, proof of existence and mm. proof of resistance and 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 the deepest possible honor to all of the ancestors of yours who have survived to make you possible and make this work possible mm-hmm. but i also was thinking about the way in that poem artifact is such a dirty word in a certain way mm. because it's like a it's an it's it's a it's a it's um 
it's really proof of erasure and mm. and and it's like behind glass yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. and it's like a it, it, it and it's it, definitely been stolen it's oh for sure yeah. and it almost is like it reminded me of like um when you put something in a museum and you say like this came from the hopi and who lived here and who did this it's like you've killed them all over you've made Mm -hmm. them into an example instead Mm -hmm. of human beings or Mm -hmm. you know whatever so i was thinking about that too and i was thinking about um the way in which like the audience functions in your work both as witness Mm -hmm. as lover Mm -hmm. as friend but also as if if as a white person i'm reading your work there is a real um, voyeurism or a kind of consumption, mm-hmm. um, and and I have to be um, like aware of my own. Uh, there's like in in a certain way, all poetry does this, but I think because your work is so self reflective, mm-hmm. I'm aware of myself as reader, as if in a museum. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like artifact is in like everything you're saying and also just like proof of history Mm -hmm. um but there isn't a way in which you know there's like there's no way in which you can exist in in this society without existing without taking part in capitalism for example you know so there's no way to interact with like um with with indigenous art or culture without also recognizing genocide you know or, or and, and and erasure and all that kind of stuff. And all I just wanted to do was like, and, and a part of the reason why I created Tebes, the character Tebes, and, and and specifically like just do not identify with him completely. Although you know, as a person who writes work, there are some autobiographical elements to it. Um, but it was because I had to. I had to get out of my own head and I couldn't be as precious with the character. Mm. I, I knew that in, in order to continue to write, in order to continue to be reflective and in order to create an imperfect person um, who, cause I, I read IRL now and I'm like, Oh my God, that person is really fooling himself a lot of the times, you know, <laughs> but, it, but I had to, but in, I had to take him out of me and put him in front of me. So I had to gaze at him as well. Mm. So a part of, a part of that experience is also me looking at the, at him, yeah. you know? Did Tebes sort of come into existence in this way it, with IRL, or had he been in your poems to the to that extent before? No, no. Tebes was a, an invention for this work in particular, but also as a person with a ton of stage fright, I had to create somebody uh-huh. that was adjacent to me, but who that who was not me, so that I could get on stage and use my whole voice and 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 in a way imagine. It's like there's a there's a thing that happens when I perform that I I feel happening, and that is um, as if this is a, my face is a mask, huh. and I'm behind it. So this so this face thing and this body and that voice or whatever. Um, like I could feel it going up here, and like it gets a little bit more playful, and I'm just like, anyway, I was I was at the store the other day, and it, like so, uh, in order to occupy that in front of people and not completely and totally freak out, because I'm extremely shy, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that I started to, and Tebes was my nickname in high school, so I just kind of start, I was like, that's. I'm Tommy. Mm-hmm. That's Teebs. Mm. I I wasn't doing it as consciously as when I started writing this book, and I was like. 
oh, well, if it's a character, I can make him do whatever I want. <laughs> or like, or, or I'll just see what he wants to do, you know? Because um, I don't really know how I would write as Tommy. I'm like working on a screenplay right now, and I had to change his name. Because hmm. it was Tommy, but I was like... And when I finished it, I had you know, I'd send it into the production company, and, and it was just like, I was like, oh. Because of copyright issues, I couldn't call him Teebs. Interesting. They Wait, were, why? It was just like some some weird stuff about ownership and like the fact that the character was. I was just commissioned to write the screenplay, uh-huh. but like, um, Teebs existed before. Uh huh. And so it, I think there was like some weird contractual stuff about who would own Teebs or some other kind of. But anyway, it's it's the rights have reverted to me. So as soon as the rights were reverted to me, I switched his name to Teebs immediately because I kept like being like, oh, Tommy wouldn't do that. Tommy, would you, would you, you know? ever ever write? into or through or out of a character who was female or who was, you know, not indigenous or who, like... Well, I had to Uh for the screenplay because there were other characters. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's a very good point. And they had dialogue and they had personalities. And I had to do... I mean, it was a really difficult thing to learn. I had, like... My contract last year was like maybe six or seven months long, and during that, I had to I had to learn everything. I had to wait, learn plot. You, had, what, wait, what, can you say more? Like, what was the screenplay about? Is it gonna Is it gonna be a a movie? Well, is it? I I was commissioned um, by a production company called Cinereach to write a screenplay for them. Um, they had read my books, they really liked them, and they were like, "We want to see what kind of screenplay you would write." Cool. Um, and that was really it was it was a wonderful lesson. It was first of all like I got out of debt. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It was like that was I was that was money. <laughs> uh-huh. um, that was great. I mean, honestly, when they were like this amount for this thing, and I was like, you got it. I will do anything you want. So I was supremely motivated by like the idea that I would exist without debt one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned, you know, but they were so open-ended and they didn't have any stipulations. And that was also very scary because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh-huh. And I still don't know what I'm doing. And I think that's a part of it. But, but they were like, well, what kind of story do you want to tell? And I was like, IDK. Like, I have <laughs> no idea. So I just started. Um, and I, I, I read a lot of screenplay. I had never even read a screenplay before that. And so I read some stuff. And, and I had never even wa- I like watched movies. You know what I mean? I didn't watch film. I didn't uh, dissect film. Um, so I had to start reading movies the way that I would read books. And I, the thing about me, I don't, and this is not self-deprecation. I'm not that smart. But I pay attention. And I learn I, and, and I, I read deeply, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I, so I don't have any, because a lot of things, they just don't c- occur to me. My friends are a lot smarter than I am, and that's on purpose, because <laughs> I <laughs> learn from them all the time. But the things that will come out of their mouth, and I'm just like, how did you put two and two together? So a part of it was just like reading movies as deeply as I would read poems, uh-huh. right? So I had that skill. That's a skill that I think you can transfer to lots of different things. That's just like deeply sitting with something and paying attention to it. And I started started to understand how formulaic commercial screenwriting is. Mm -hmm. And I read something that was about, you know, once I learned that this happens on page two, this happens on page 10, that happens on page 25, that happens on page 55, that happens on page 75, that happens on page 100, I was like, oh, thank God. Like, thank God I don't have to invent screenwriting. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then I just kind of started to think about, 
I, I mean, I, I don't know if I can actually say what it's about, but I started to think about um, a sort of yeah, version of me that would not can that wouldn't that deeply wanted something out of the world but could not admit imperfection to himself and so could actually never get what he wanted because mm. in order to you know i had to write through 15 years of shitty shitty poetry before i got to and it was longer than that. I mean, if we're talking about me speaking into these like tape recorders, that was a good 30 years of practice before I got to IRL. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Of failure, of like fail, big failure. I look up, I look on some of the things that I wrote and I'm like, how? Oh, and even now I look back on some of these things. And again, like having these books in this room, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad that, at least I've gotten to the point where I, I acknowledge that other people enjoyed it, even if I don't. Oh. <laughs> um, so, so I was interested in like a person who, who wanted something very, very deeply out of, out of life, maybe something artistic. But um, it's like sort of instead of, instead of, you know, like who wanted to be a singer and instead of being a sing, instead of like singing, they would go to a singing lesson and talk about singing the whole time, mm -hmm. but never actually do it, never actually commit to being bad so that they could get better. Um, that, I mean, that as an idea, whatever, but like, you know, I had to also make a plot. I had to make a plot. And that was really, really, really difficult because I don't have a very big imagination. <laughs> and I had to like make people who, this was one of the most difficult things. I mean, it like, it did sort of give me a very, very it gave me a very real it gave me very real problems in my body mm. because i had to the the note that i kept getting back over and over and over when i would send in my drafts was like you need to increase the dramatic tension which was i think a nice way of saying this is kind of boring <laughs> <laughs> nothing really happens because i had people who were like communicating with each other and who were like wanted the best for each other i had to actually make people who would fight and who would have secrets and who didn't want the best. In fact, maybe they and, and were self-destructive. And, and I tried to live life with the least amount of tension possible. So I had to create the most amount of tension. And that just like, it did bad things to me. So like, um, I could not, like, like eating made me want to throw up. Um, I couldn't run, which is my main outlet of like, the reason I was late to the studio today is because I, I had to get like my three mile run in this morning, you know, um, as, as like a way to release stuff in my body. And I just couldn't get any joy from, like I could not even get horny. Like I couldn't fuck at all. And it was because, and you know, shout out to my therapist, Dr. John, but it was because I started to realize that like all of the things that I was doing, that like hunger is attention you relieve by eating. Um, horniness is attention you relieve by fucking. And, and, and running is just like a big release of tension. I, I didn't feel like I had access to relieving, relieving tension because I was, it was my job to create tension. I hope that that's not the, cause I, I do want, like I'm, I'm writing a few other screenplays now and thankfully they're not as, well, some of them are, are, are not so, they're not, I'm, I'm, they're not so personal. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Cause like, this is about like, Tommy is a person from a Kumeyaay reservation in San Diego and now lives in Brooklyn. I, that was the name of the character at the time anyway. Um, 
but I, I identified with him too strongly. And so all of the things that were happening to him started taking themselves out of me too. And also just like having to get into like creating characters, getting into their head. I don't really know how fiction writers do this or, or people who write screenplays or, or, or plays or whatever. Like it's just so hard, first of all, to make somebody and then to get into their head. Cause like, you know, you want to, the dialogue to have some, you know, you want it to sound like it would come out of their face. And so you kind of, I, I sound like a crazy person, but it was just me being in a room talking to myself and be like, oh, wait, well, how would Tommy say this? How would Leo say this? Like, how would Roy say this? Like, how would, how would, how would Pam say this? You know? And I had to like sit there and like fail, 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 fail until I got to the point where I was like actually having them talk to each other. And then to make them do bad things to each other, I was like, oh God, these people (laughs) are so fucked up. (laughs) Did you feel like after realizing that, um, it, that screenwriting and screenplays are like so formulaic and like this happens on page two, this happens. When you, do you think about poetry differently? Do you feel like there's anything God, that... poetry is so much harder. You know what I mean? Like the thing about screenwriting, and this is what I'll say about it. It's not easy, but it's not hard. It's like, it's not the hardest writing I've ever had to do. Learning, the, the process of learning and still not really understanding fundamentals about like plot and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like that was very, very difficult, but... I don't even know how a poem works. Okay, do you consider these poems? Hmm. Well, okay. First of all, my book, IRL, won the Brooklyn Literary Prize in fiction. Uh huh. They didn't even have a category for poetry. And I've heard it referred to as a novel. And the. And junk was recently referred to by one of the editors at the New York Times Book Review as a beat novel in verse for the social media age. Okay. Um, and and so I I think of them as poems because that was my intention as I was writing them. How anybody else reads that is deeply none of my business. So how it's categorized, like I don't really have. You know, somebody told me somebody referred to nature poem as like a, a nonfiction essay. Uh huh. That they were like, oh, I could see this in the nonfiction section. And I was like. Mm. Could you? <laughs> and what does it mean to you to, ha- to for your intention originally to have been that they're poems? That's just kind of how I came up was like writing poetry. So it's like I saw it as an extension of what I was already doing. Uh-huh. But I understand. And I too, uh, I'm not too, I'm not too married to my intention mm-hmm. in the sense that it means something to me mm-hmm. as I'm making a book. But in this idea of like trying to exist without as much tension as possible in my body, it's like learning that I, once it's out there, I don't have control over it anymore. And so it's like, however it's categorized, I, it's not, or how it's read or misread or whatever, it's so deeply out of my control that while it existing as a long poem, I think, is important for me because that is the world that I love. And those are sort of the people who were in my mind as I was writing it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they have, you know, Citizen had a lot of, it was like, it was nominated for nonfiction, I believe, right. for something at one point. Or, you know, so um, I actually think that's really cool if it's kind of blurring genre boundaries. Can I tell you about my genre crisis? Yes. I might have to take this out of the podcast. <laughs> 
So I went to this, I'd never been to a residency before, and I applied a million, million times, never got in, da, da, da. Okay, then I got into make, to, to, to three, actually, this year. And Congratulations. Thank you. You know, and there were a lot of reasons that I wanted to do it. I had two books I needed to finish, and also I, like, really wanted to be away from my family. <laughs> and, um, True that. Yeah, and I, like, but I was, like, needing a socially acceptable way to be away from my family, especially my kids. People are super judgmental about, like, moms going away from their kids. And um, so I went to McDowell for 28 days. It was, like, this incredible experience. I loved the people. I loved everything about it. But it was also, like, so hard on my body. And I was writing this book of prose, these lectures that are essays. And, like, but then they sort of became memoir and... It was just like I was going back into these parts of my life that were really hard to write about. And also, it wasn't just that the material was hard to write about. There was a lot of shame for me and thinking like, I'm acting like somebody gives a shit about my life. Mm. This is the only way for me to write it mm. is to pretend mm. like somebody is interested in me, which is so awful. Mm. It just felt like, who do I think I am? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, then I came home, had a really rough few weeks with my kids and had all this other shit happen. And then I went to uh, Vermont Studio Center where I was um, supposed to finish my book of poems. It was, it was totally finished. I just had some notes from, from my editor and I was just going to like make some like tiny little changes. Okay. And I, I was reading your book and all this shit was happening with my kids at home and um, I did not – I just – I just woke up like the second morning that I was there and I was like, I don't want to be a poet Ugh. anymore. Mm -hmm. I just ever again, like I hate poets. Mm -hmm. I hate poets. I mm -hmm. hate poetry. This and is a conversation I have with Morgan Parker all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then also I feel like I am the mother of teenagers and I'm really tired of being hated. Mm. Like I just, and so if I'm hated by my children in like a kind of normal natural way but i just like can't take it anymore and i'm hated by the world for being a poet except from like other tiny little group of poets you know mm -hmm. whatever and it's like some of those poets it's like though they keep me alive you mm -hmm. know they're just like mm -hmm. i you know that they're really what keeps me you know on this planet mm -hmm. and i was like i I don't, I don't want to be a poet. I just, mm. there's certain things like I just, and I, I just was like, I'm this most self-hating poet of all time. Okay. So, um, and I was like reading your book, but I was like, well, I, this is poetry be, and I love it. So mm. what is my problem? And I just, I, I just didn't know what to do. And I, and I'd been criticized like my whole early life as a poet, like even my whole life as a poet for my poems being too much too prosy, mm -hmm. too narrative. Like, why is this even poetry? Anyway, I took out all the line breaks in all the poems in the book. And about a third of the poems were already very long, kind of like essay-like in prose. Mm -hmm. But I still considered them poems. And then I was like, well, what if I, you know, what if I'm just not a poet? Mm -hmm. Like, what if I've spent 25 years fighting to be to have what I write be called poetry mm -hmm. but it why didn't I just think about like what else I wanted to call it or mm. what I wanted it to be like could I is it memoir where the main character is a poet you mm. know is it like I don't know and I had all these ideas about how poetry was like a more authentic or 
or um, you know, it didn't it didn't have the lies that narrative had, like the beginning, middle, and end, and our expectations of stories that like poetry could like do this thing that you know I could write about birth in a poem in a way that I could never do in a piece of prose or an essay or a story. I don't know. And so now I'm trying. I, so I sent it to the to my editor. I was like really nervous because um, they had accepted it as a book of poetry. Yeah. Um, and I had this whole rant about like I was like I just think I'm like genre non-binary now. Mm-hmm. I'm like genre non-conforming. I don't even know what this is. I don't even know what I'm doing. And so I had this whole thing where I was like, oh, this is so interesting. This I'm really experimenting. And then I was like why did I think that if I took the line breaks out of the poems, and obviously once I took the line breaks out, uh, everything had to change. Mm -hmm. So it was like not just, oh, I just took the line breaks out. But I was like, why did I think that if I took the line breaks out, everybody would love me? Mm. And so it's so interesting for me to hear you say like, okay, I made these things. And once I made them, I really can't control, you know, who how they're marketed, how they're categorized, who reads them, what they feel about them. I have to just like be honest and say, I, I've i never so much until this moment in my life at age 46, like already written nine books. Like I really, it's so shameful how much I want to be liked mm. by the reader mm-hmm. and how much I want to figure out like what kind of makeup to wear or what kind of presentation, like it, I, I'm not going to pick something that's going to ruin, I hope, the work. Mm-hmm. I want, I have to pick something that's authentic to the work, that that's like the form of the work. And yet, I still also believe that there's there are ways to come across as a total dickwad and like alienate your reader and scare the hell out of people. And like, I don't want to do that. I don't mm. want to be that person. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm completely confused. Well, I don't, I, I, I <laughs> also. And then I saw nature poem because I, because I, I took all, all, all the line breaks, you mm-hmm. know, and I was like, well, I'm no Tommy Pico, so I can't sustain the reader in this way. So I'm taking out all the line breaks and mm-hmm. I'm going to see how that goes. And then I, and then I came home and I read nature poem and I was like, seriously, Tommy Pico, <laughs> really? You already did that. But what is happening? Cause it, cause they, it looks now much more like nature poem. Yeah. Well, the thing about nature poem too, is that like it got so much more response than IRL. Like n- again, like nobody wanted IRL and then a nature poem immediately toning them at Tin House wanted it. And so it's kind of felt like nobody wants my poem. Is it because, do you think it's because of how it looks on the page? It can be daunting. And I, I think, I think the people, I mean, people I think are conditioned to think about poetry a certain way. Right. And I didn't have that condition growing up because my parents who are both, you know, live in the cut on the reservation. Um, deeply loved poetry. That's how they met and fell in love with each other. My dad loved Alfred Lord Tennyson. My mom loved Anakbatova. They didn't have very good educations, but they didn't put anything inside of me that like poetry should be seen of as something uh, ivory tower or academic or anything like that. It, it always seemed very accessible to me. It just required time and attention. You couldn't skim a poem. Right. You had to read a poem. Um, and I think that 
that's probably why they've been very encouraging of my career because, oh, they didn't really know what the fuck I was doing when I just <laughs> when I decided not to go to medical school. That was, and I just I didn't go back home after that because I was like I can't show my face here anymore. Um, but they have come around to it, especially in recent years after, you know, actually having a book out in the world and then getting all this acclaim. And then they like they came to a reading that I did at the Standard in L.A. and they were like, all these people know who you are. And I was like, I know it's deeply weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> they must have been so thrilled, proud, happy. Yeah. So- yeah. They were all I mean, they were just happy that I was making money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't that I was not because I, I like turning. I my mother had her first child. I mean, she already had three kids by the time she was like 25. So like, I don't know. But um, what I meant to say was that at least initially, Nature Poem had so much more goodwill and attention and like the zine version of it, like into the book. And I think it was because it didn't have any like line breaks. Okay, but here's another question for you. And you're the person to answer this for me. Like when I told my husband over the phone from Virginia, from, um, Vermont. I was like, okay, I took out all the line breaks. He had this like, you know, and I was like, what the hell do you care? Mm -hmm. I read you the poems out loud. You don't know where the line breaks are. You don't know if there are line breaks. And so that's the other thing. Like, so also people have responded often to your work primarily from hearing you perform the work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's super interesting. Like, I, I don't know. I keep thinking about It was honestly like performing came from uh, having a huge chip on my shoulder for writing poetry Mm. that I was like, okay, if I, I'm not ever going to get anyone interested in this poetry unless I get up there and I read my fucking face off, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it gave me, it was honestly, that was like my intention. I was like, okay, there is a difference. There's a difference between selling 10 books and selling 10,000 books. And that is all about the 10 minutes I have on stage. And so that's why I, I did all that stuff to make my voice so sharp. And, and I did all, I put myself through the ringer to like have a, a performance ethic um, because I didn't think anyone would want to buy it if it was just poetry. Um, and then with the thing about, oh, I'm just going to say that it's been amazing actually in the wake of the, the book's publication that IRL has gotten the attention that it has because IRL is the one that won the Brooklyn Public Library right. Literary Prize. IRL is the one that was nominated for the Kate Duff's, Kate Tufts Discovery Award. IRL is the reason why I got the whiting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, and Nature Poem has nary a sticker on it. <laughs> right. Well, didn't it just come out? Um, it came out last year. Okay. But um, I mean, it is nominated for a Lambda Literary Award, but yeah. it's like, it didn't get I'm just so happy that IRL got the shine that it got because that's like my heart. You know what I mean? Like nature poem was like an exercise in the way I see them is IRL Teebs doesn't know he's a poet by nature poem. He knows he's a poet. He thinks he has it figured out by junk. He's like, Oh my God, what the hell happened? You know? Um, so it, it was more calculated, but IRL is just so much more. I Like, I read it now. Like I said before, I read it now, and I don't identify with the person as much anymore because he is, like, deeply searching for a purpose. And and so, but I see it as, like, there's, like, a weird honesty to it. There's, like, a, there's like a, you know, I was talking about, like, 2016 and nobody knowing my name or whatever, and it's, like, there that I saw, I don't, I, I don't want to say honest is maybe not the right word because I feel like, that they're they're all honest to a certain degree, but um, he's just so new, you know. I don't know. There's just something about him in that book that like 
gets that that makes me feel like maybe nostalgic but protective maybe is it different for you now in the compositional space knowing that you are a known person it well this is why i don't have a i don't like having a relationship to the to to the the quote-unquote book as much as I want to have a relationship to writing uh-huh. and why I was so surprised when I went on tour that people knew who I was because I don't want that to get in the way of like my my practice you know but writing now I mean the thing is I don't know if anything is ever good but I know <laughs> when I'm when I'm writing something and it needs to come out. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't ever think that I have anything to say, but I just have to have enough faith in what I'm saying to keep going. And so that thing has been happening where it's like my ears get tingly and I just feel like there's like a kind of fuzziness in my chest. And I'm like, okay, so it's it's coming out. It's like still the same feeling. Uh-huh. Um, but food is so much about loneliness. Huh. Food is so much about isolation. And, and it has, it, it's because like, you know, I spent maybe a third, over a third of the year last year traveling, wow. you know, do, going to different colleges and stuff. And, um, and I was making money off of, off of writing for the, fir- the first year in my life. I was able to like not have any other side hustles, but I was so alone. Hmm. And it like, that might sound complainy, but it was like, and I talked to Morgan a lot about this because it would be like, you know, I'd be in the hotel room getting ready to get in a bath and like, oh, this is so luxurious. And it's just like, I wish somebody else was here. Hmm. I wish I was like sharing this with somebody and also just being gone so often, it's impossible to get romantic traction with anybody. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's a kind of like vagabondy life that, and I'm in different cities all the time. And, and it's like, I love learning new cities. I love traveling. I love walking around. But work traveling is not the same as traveling traveling, mm-hmm. number one. And number two, it's like everyone that I have interact with is somebody who I've known for about 20 minutes total. And so I'm, I'm not able to spend the time I want with the people who I've identified as being my community, my family, you know? And so that's kind of like the underpinning of the book. And so, so, so to a certain degree, yes, I, I, I am out there a little bit more and people know my name and they want to pay me money for, to come to their school. Great. Please continue to do that. I would love to come to your school. Give me money. Um, you know, like I got an email from Paul Muldoon the other day and I was like, the dude from the poem? I, I had to like check and make sure that, that that's where he worked to make sure that was actually the person. Because like that can't be the Paul Muldoon from the books, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but I have been able to, again, to to get around to being alone, I have been able to preserve a space where those things go Mm -hmm. that do not have a relationship to whether or not people have a relationship to my name. Yeah. So I want to have you read some more, but I also wanted to ask you, um, about food for thought, um, the podcast, Mm -hmm. and and I have like a specific question about it, but, um, could you like... When did you start it? Why do you do it? You so know, Food for yeah. Thought is a uh, a podcast, a podcast gab fest. We're in a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, identity, culture, what we like to read, 
and who we like to read. I've been cultivating my radio voice. That was awesome, by the Thank way. Thank you. Um, I the thing is, I don't really believe in like talent. And it's sort of like you know writing or whatever, just because it's like I, that's not a talent that I have. It's something that it's I cultivated after a lot a lot of work. I do, in a weird way though, think that my voice is kind of a talent that I have in the sense that I can make it do whatever I want to. But I also worked really hard to have this voice. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so food for thought is a podcast. I started with some friends of mine. Um, a uh, multiracial mix of queer writers. Uh, we all met at the 2016 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. Oh, cool. Um, none of us really having known each other, but all of us weirdly having been from New York or living in New York. Um, I knew Fran to a certain extent, but we weren't like friends. Um, and I met the, my two other co-hosts, Dennis and Joe, there, and we just kind of immediately were attracted to each other just because we're all super faggy. And also we all like ended up being from New York or living in New York, which creates a certain disposition in a person that you can really see in somebody when you go to Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and th there's a, a certain speed of conversation, you know what I mean? And a, a, a impatience <laughs> for the smallest things. Um, and so then we just kind of started like having co conversations as people do when they meet each other, but they would go from like Lemonade, which we were all listening to, the Beyonce album, um, and like bad hookup stories with dudes in the city and trying to date and also Mary Ruffle. You know, it was just like all of those things inhabited the same space and it was kind of freeing for all of us to not really translate or code switch for each other. And the fact that like, I'm indigenous, Dennis is black, Fran is Latino, and we call Joe our light bright, like he's our one white person that we let in. <laughs> um, uh, that was, that was just, it was, it was just, I don't want to say freeing, but there was a freedom attached to it. But the thing is, I started to notice that people around the workshop identified us mm. as like the, those four people. Mm-hmm and kind of gave us like a wide berth as we kind of like walked around and talked and would observe us having conversations, but never really um, interact with them. Mm -hmm. Or not interact, but, but you know, they kind of let us have our thing, but they were all deeply interested in what we were saying. Um, and when we left, you know, cause like being out of workshop or whatever, that's kind of like camp time. And in camp time, you always say like, oh, we have to keep in touch when we go back to New York. Which I know people don't do that. Mm -hmm. No, they do not. So I was like, it, in, a, in a selfish way, it was me getting to have these three people in my life on a weekly basis, but also knowing the ambition of people in New York. I knew we weren't going to see each other regularly unless we ended up working on a something together. Mm -hmm. So um, I was like, hey, why don't we do this podcast? Because um, we had called ourselves the Thought Catalog, spelled T-H-O-T, which means that hoe over there, because we were all deeply slutty. Um, that was like the name of our group chat. But then it's like, we need to call it something, but it can't be that, because that's there's already a thing called Thought Catalog. Um, and so then we came up with Food for Thought, where that gave us a space to have these weekly conversations that went from like race and pop culture to dating and everything in between. And we had one season 
um, that was a very short season, eight episodes long. The thing is, like, we found a producer who was really, really interested in the th- kinds of stuff that we we're making because she was, you know, working at mid-roll and doing some other stuff and was just, like, deeply uninterested in a lot of the different shows that she was working on. And um, my friend owned a recording studio in Greenpoint, so we got friend Ray on that. Mm. A bunch of friends, friend, like, friends, friends of the photography and the branding, and it was just, like, we had all kind of pooled our collective creative resources that we'd spent, you know, over our entire lives in New York kind of cultivating, not selfishly, but just being like, oh, this person has a thing, this person has a thing, this person has a thing, Um, because we really, really wanted to make it. So that by the time our second season rolled around, we were acquired by um, or supported by um, Into, which is a magazine um, that came out of Grindr, this app. So they just gave us a bunch of money and they were like, here, make another season. And we did that. I mean, we were all kind of agreed that it was a little long and it was... Making a weekly show is very hard on top of you trying to make other things. And, like, creative resources are finite. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, but it did teach me a lot about commitment and a lot about having um, – there were, there were things that we talked about that ended up come, becoming a part of my book, you know? So it gave me f- weekly fodder to create more material, I guess. Okay, so that's my so – thank you for – I'm so interested – I was so interested in, like, the making of the podcast and like I didn't know that you recorded it you know at the recording studio once a week I don't know even understand how you possibly did that and mm. with all this traveling and like all that stuff but okay it's fascinating and then the, the question is exactly about what you just said like so in a recent episode um you'll you'll have to listen to the episode if you want to hear the full story but Tommy discusses um being on a comp a campus visit and being debased and <laughs> oh my god <laughs> And uh, no, now people will go listen to it. Um, I and- almost threw up in the studio when, when I was recounting that story. <laughs> I just have a thing about like fluids and, you know, like, oh God. And like, weirdly enough, like, like a week later, I was on tour with Joe and he was like, telling me this story about it was disgusting and he wouldn't stop when we were walking home and I started like, um, um, gagging and uh-huh. he immediately turned it on his Instagram story and filmed me as he continued to tell the story start to throw up so it's like I have a kind of a quick stomach so I almost bombed in the studio when I was telling that story that gives you any incentive to go check out the episode yes okay so you tell the story and then at the very end of the story you say that you call you either called or texted uh, Morgan mm-hmm. and wrote something like, you know, guess who just got debased? Yeah. Um, and so it was so, I mean, the story was super interesting to me for so many different reasons. But the thing I wanted to ask you about um, on this podcast was you just said like there's creative resources are limited. And so is there any, any way in which, you know, doing this podcast, um, you know, telling that story to Morgan, but then telling it on the podcast um, actually ha- diminishes or, or like um, reduces the pressure that you might need to put it into the poem. Like mm. you were talking about like the need to like uh, kind of, um, what did you say when you were writing the screenplay, like to, to create, um, you know, that kind of tension, you almost had to like, you know, not do all the things you usually do to release tension. I'm wondering about like, do these you know, you do so many different cool, fun things that that at their nature have a, a storytelling component mm-hmm. um, at their center. You know, have the, have this like you know communication um, uh, 
um, sharing, expressing, performing, um, sh telling, you know, do those feed the poems? Because you, you sort of were like, yes, this gave me creative fodder for the mm -hmm. poems. But also, do they kind of like, uh, are you ever worried that they'll make the poems ne less necessary? Sometimes, absolutely, yeah. And in fact, like, because of that, I kind of, I, I, I said no to a lot of things this summer mm. so that I could have, I mean, I have to turn the manuscript in by July. I told for Tim, food. yeah, because I was like, when is the last possible time I could turn this in and still maybe be on the calendar for 2019? You know what uh -huh. I mean? Because then I'll have like my four books out and I will never write a poem ever again. <laughs> I hope um, not. <laughs> but um, but I, I want, I deeply need to take that time away from everything else yeah. because I have accumulated a whole lot. But the thing is, like, not having the time to craft it yeah. has been the dysfunction in my life. Yeah. Um, and I feel it, you know what I mean? Because it's like instinctually, and this is, I mean, whether or not these things cross genres or whatever, I mean, I feel, I just know what it feels like when I'm not making the thing that I need to be making. Mm. And food has been a thing, like I kind of started it last summer when I had a break. I had turned in the rough draft of my screenplay and so I had a six week window where um, they were reviewing it and were coming up with notes. And so during that six weeks, I just like, traveled a bunch and I went to a bunch of people's kitchens and I created this whole uh, process for myself, a curriculum, wherein I could only read food books, I would only listen to food podcasts, um, I could only watch food movies and food TV shows. I had to cook my, all my own meals and, because I can't cook, so this is teaching myself how to cook, and um, twice a week I had to go into other people's kitchens, cook something with them. I would ask them what's their staple or um, maybe what's something that they ha everyone loves when they bring it to the cookout or something was their first thing they learned how to cook or whatever as a, as a medium of storytelling because I got all of these, like, as a person who does not have a food history, you know, because I, I, I grew up in a place that was, um, had these like government commodities shipped in because there's no arable land. And yeah. I was thinking a lot about how another way to subjugate an, an indigenous population is by stripping them of their food resources, mm -hmm. right? And so it was a way for me to create a food history for myself, um, to learn how to cook, but also to, to make other people's histories my history too. Mm. You know, so it was like learning about like um, my friend's family fleeing Eastern Europe, but carrying this cookie recipe with them or mm. whatever, or somebody's grandma's um, gnocchi recipe and meatballs, or, you know, somebody else's like their, the, the mac and cheese that they first, they had to learn how to cook for themselves because like their parents were gone all the time or whatever and so it's like not only that but then this delving into a language a different language of English which is like food language it gives you so many more metaphors so many more ways in which language is strange to me again and and ways in which and this is probably why it has been work it has worked out as a exercise for writing is that like I, I'm still coming from a place of deep not knowing. Mm. And I think that's really important for me in whatever project that I'm taking on. Because the second I start to feel like I know something, that's when I start to fuck up. Um, and so, yeah, so it's like having all like things breaking or blanching or whatever, like there's a whole other language that I'm sort of being able to pull out and use. 
And um, it's given me a lot of, like I said, fodder, but like doing the podcast and doing the um, screenplay and having all of these other, like, you know, working on essays and working on other things and traveling so much, it's like I didn't have the curriculum, mm. so I couldn't write the book. Although I was creating a lot of writing and I still have, I have, a, I have just like an archive of stuff to pull from now. Um, it was, I just, I was just like, I was still antsy because I knew that book was in me and I was just like, I need to finish. I need to work on it. I need to get out of here. I need to do something. So now that the, um, we've recorded the season finale, the season finale is actually out now. And I have, I did, I had to do the soundscape for the Highline Park and for Grandma Poetry and Vignettes in Seattle. Um, I'm getting, I'm the last actual, um, restraint or not restraint but the last thing I have committed myself to was I'm going to a weekend in Chicago this coming weekend for women and children first and um, the American Indian Center in Chicago and then the following weekend I am marrying I'm doing I'm, I'm officiating a ceremony for my friends oh. and writing a little thing for them uh-huh. apart from that the rest of my summer is mine and I'm so excited because I again I've been doing a lot of note-taking but I haven't done a lot of forming so I know it's there. I just, I don't really, the thing is like, it's kind of partially structured as a recipe mm. because awesome. it's like a, a, well, it's an epistolary poem. So it starts off Dear Reader and it invokes Dear Reader a lot in it um, because I see recipes as being epistolary in nature. Uh-huh. And so it's kind of a recipe of how you get a teebs, you know? Um, but then there are, but then the thing is like, I tried too hard to control it. And, and it kind of got away from me. And now that I'm returning to it, it's like way more like nature poem mm-hmm. in the sense of, I mean, I see the relations. I see the, I see the immediacy and the, the vitality of IRL reflected in junk to a certain extent. And so I'm seeing the contemplation in nature poem being reflected in food, the one I'm working on now. Um, and so there is more space and there's more like line, playing with line lengths and it's, it's more um, prosy. Hmm. And but like the sections in between, I finished like the recipe sections kind of, but the what adheres the recipe sections together is like it's way more, um, it's just way quieter and slower. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a kind of piece that the speaker in Junk was looking for, but still there's still because like one of the ways in which I, I see Junk functioning is like in a redemption of Junk itself that. Um, there, there, can there be a utility? Can there be a solace outside of utility? Can you not exist as have a purpose? As a purpose, you know, is there is there is there some comfort in just existing and just being? And so I see the person in that poem definitely coming to that idea and deeply wanting that, but there's still so much alert and drama and confusion and in intensity that like I'm seeing the food as if I'm thinking about this as something that wraps up this like four book thing. Um, it's that solace realized mm. and uh, the allowance of more white space, more quietness, you know, um, definitely more punctuation. <laughs> Fascinating. I can't wait. Ah, me neither. I mean, I just really, really, really want to work on it. And and again, I was talking about this with Morgan. We were talking about all of the ways in which we um, invent things to do so that because being like, oh, it's my job. It's literally my job to get up and write and read things, mm. you know, and 
only in the best possible world could that have happened. You know, like I did work really, really, really hard so that my job is to write books and tell stories. Why am I giving myself so many tasks to get out of doing that thing? You know, and so I'm just I'm just excited to make that my thing again. You want to read something? Yes, Do you sure. have anything from food that you want to read or not yet? Mm, no. Not that I wouldn't read it. I just don't know how it's supposed to go yet. Fascinating. You know? Okay. What do you anything you want? Sure. Yeah. Um so give what, me junk. All right. The a a breakup has just happened. We'll give you some context for this. The covers up to our shoulders. We lay in the couch bed of our preconceptions separating and I steady walk back to the land where I don't know you took you long fucking enough now I'm stupid and sugar-free and frothing the only thing harder than writing is quitting candy and the only thing harder than quitting candy is walking all day and buttering to bed in my body but now that I'm fully inhabiting my cement maybe I'm closer to the sacral joy of thinking into my ribcage Convention says a book should be this long, but I'm only interested in writing as long as you want to read in one sitting. My aura is a strawberry shortcake dessert bar and the popular American corn snack Funyuns. My safe word is go to hell, Katy Perry, pronounced caddy. I'm writing a sitcom about butts and counting. It's called Number Two. The tagline is turn the other cheek. Most times I'm a maniac. Other times losing an arm wrestling match, sitting for longer and longer but paying less and less attention evolutionarily is a load easier to swallow with we we've known for centuries that time is a bossy bird curdler protrude from the green and calling it bud sometimes you need to read something more than once. My co-pilot is Mary Jane. The theme is harmony of a gradient. Let's hold hands and walk to the water taxi and match in tank tops, but we call the tank tops wedges. And the wedges are a chip witch. And our cherry cokes are a summer afternoon where we can't do nothing but lean into the grass at the carousel park in Dumbo with the lap of the river and the dollhouse of lower Manhattan face fucking us while we neck and later face fuck. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for you. spending this time with me, this Tommy. This was so fun. It was amazing. And it's weird to hear somebody <laughs> talk about me like I have things to say. You, But you do. <laughs> This has been episode 53 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Commonplace producers are Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music performed and written by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to the presses who support Commonplace, especially for this episode, Birds LLC, Tin House Books, and New Directions Press. Thank you to all our patrons and to you, dear listener. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>